We now bring you the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast, featuring the late Dr. Harold B. Seitler, founding pastor of Tabernacle Baptist Church and Ministries in Greenville, South Carolina. And now, today's edition of the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. Now we'll open up our Bibles. We'll turn first of all to Ezekiel chapter number 38 and Revelation chapter number 13. Now, I brought you a message on last Sunday night, and I'd like to continue the same theme tonight on Bible predictions of things soon to come upon this earth. I said to you then, and I repeat again now, that I don't propose to try to tell you when the Lord is coming again or when the Antichrist is going to be revealed. I don't know that anybody in the world could tell you when those things could happen. I'd rather think the Bible means what it says when it says, no man knows the day nor the hour. I do not know the day, and I, neither do I know the hour. But I do seek to discern the signs of the times, and uh, we are commissioned of God and challenged of God uh, to study and to discern the signs of the times, and that's what we're trying to do with this particular message. Without setting a date, we're taking a look, a fresh look from the Bible, at certain things that we can look for and expect to transpire upon this earth. Some Bible predictions, not my ideas, nor my predictions, but Bible predictions of things soon to come upon this earth. Now, last Sunday, I mentioned to you three things that uh, we can look for. I, I tried to, I mentioned two things in, la- in that message last Sunday, uh, Bible prophecies already that have been fulfilled in the span of our lifetime. And I want to mention one other tonight in just a moment. But those three things that I dealt with last Sunday night that will soon come up on the earth. Number one, apostasy. The general apostasy of organized Christendom. Second Thessalonians 2 and verse number 3. And then second, uh, we, we predicted soon to come the revelation of the son of perdition, the Antichrist, the man of sin that he's called in Second Thessalonians 2 and verse number 3. Now, whether the Antichrist is going to be revealed before the church is raptured out or immediately after, I don't think the scripture is altogether clear right at that point. But we can say that the Antichrist will be revealed at the time of the second coming of our Lord. Maybe a few days or a few weeks before, maybe a few days or a few weeks after. But right at the time, I question whether uh, you'd have both of these tremendous events transpiring at the same breathless moment. No, I'd rather think they're closely related in the same general area of the second coming of our Lord in the rapture. We're going to have the revelation of the Antichrist by Satan. He's prepared by Satan. He's groomed by Satan. And he's going to be revealed by Satan uh, at the right time, right at the second coming of our Lord. Now, we can expect that. That's going to happen just as sure as anything has ever happened. The man of sin must be brought on the scene. And then number three, I dealt with the uh, prediction of the rebuilding of the new temple in Jerusalem. To me, that's one of the most wonderful things, and yet one of the most positive things as far as Bible prophecy is concerned that I've ever studied in all the span of my ministry. The temple must be rebuilt. Daniel chapter 9 verse 27 speaks of the abomination of desolation. That abomination cannot be committed without a temple. Jesus in Matthew 24 verse 15 speaks of the abomination of desolation uh, standing in the holy place. There is no holy place tonight. There is no temple in Jerusalem tonight. 
Therefore, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet cannot take place until a new temple has been rebuilt. To me, that's as clear as any Bible prophecy I know in all the scriptures. Now, whether the temple will be rebuilt or begun at least before the church is raptured out or immediately after, I, I would not say dogmatically. I'd rather believe that the temple will be commenced to be rebuilt after the church is caught out. Because the man of sin must first confirm the covenant with Israel for seven years. And the confirmation of that covenant will allow Israel freedom to rebuild the temple. Because that confirmation has to do with peace in Israel. Peace in the promised land. Now the Jews have the temple site right now. Right now they have it. And if they were so a mind to, they could bring in the bulldozers tomorrow and push down the mosque of Omar and clear the temple area and commits building the new temple next week. But the Jews know, and you know, that if they were to do that, it would spark the bloodiest Jew-Arab war the world has ever seen. And thousands of people would die. The streets of Jerusalem would run with blood again if they were to destroy that uh, mosque of Omar right at this particular moment. But some way, somehow, God's going to give to Israel that particular site because that's where Solomon's temple one time stood. That's the same spot of ground that Abraham offered Isaac unto the Lord in Genesis chapter number 22. That site must contain the new temple. Now, when the, Jew, when the Antichrist confirms or guarantees to Israel seven years of undisturbed peace, then they shall not fear to remove the mosque of Omar. And that's going to happen, of course, after the rapture has taken place. And we are carried out of the earth to meet the Lord in clouds, you see. That mosque will be moved and the new temple will be built after the rapture uh, takes place and the church is lifted out. But the temple must be rebuilt. And in the middle of the seven-year period is the abominable act of the Antichrist when he shows himself that he's God and demands that he be worshipped as God. That's the abomination of desolation. And that's going to be committed, of course, in the new temple and with God's new altar that will be rebuilt along with the new temple that will soon be put up and erected in the city of Jerusalem. Now, I dealt with those three prophecies on last Lord's Day. I have several other things that I want to say tonight. First of all, may I remind you of one other tremendous Bible prophecy, not to be fulfilled, but that has already been fulfilled. Now, last Lord's Day, I mentioned the, uh, uh, the Luke 21, 24, where Jesus said in Jerusalem, shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. We saw that prophecy fulfilled in the Six-Day War of 1967. And then we mentioned last Sunday night also about the, the miraculous rebirth of the nation of Israel after more than 2,000 years when there was no nation, no currency, no army, no flag of David, no parliament, no government. And then after 2,002 millenniums with no Israel, May the 15th, 1948, Israel was reborn and took her place in the UN among the nations of the earth. And I tried to show you how that Israel tonight is one of the most famous, one of the most popular nations in all of the earth, probably commanding more front page news coverage than any other one nation in the world with a possible exception of the United States. Tremendous thing. The rebirth of Israel, a direct fulfillment of the prophecy contained in Ezekiel chapter 37, that great boneyard of dead bones and dry bones that lived again is a picture of the rebirth of the nation of Israel. 
Now those have been fulfilled. Now here's another prophecy that has already been fulfilled. Now I mention these that have already been fulfilled to encourage you to believe that these that are yet to be fulfilled will one day be as real as these that we've already seen come to pass in the span of our lifetime. Uh, in Ezekiel chapter number 36, Ezekiel the prophet calls the land of Israel prior to 1917 a desolate, barren, desert wasteland. And I use the exact words used by the prophet in Ezekiel 36 and verses 24 uh, and in that section of the chapter. A barren, desolate wasteland. And Israel was that. Israel was that for 2,000 years. All those long years when there was no nation of Israel. And uh, 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 the land became barren, a desert, a wasteland. It could not be tilled or cultivated or it was not productive for Israel or anybody else in those 2,000 years because God withheld the land. And the land became a worthless, a worthless barren wasteland. Uh, back in about 1100 A.D., 1000 A.D., 1100 A.D., you find the Crusaders uh, who were a European army, a religious army, who time and again invaded the land of Palestine and literally made a battlefield out of it. Now the Crusaders took it upon themselves to purge out all the Muslims from the land of Israel. And they went and fought in the valley of Megiddo time and time again. Some of the most famous battles in all history were fought between the Crusaders and the Muslims uh, in the valley of Megiddo. And at the time the Crusaders were uh, trying to liberate Israel, the land of Palestine from the Muslim people, uh, the land was a barren wasteland worth only to be used as a battlefield because it was desert and a wasteland. No, very few inhabitants, no doubt, in that land. And if you went there today, you'd see some of the uh, uh, evidences of that long period of time when the land was a barren wasteland. Uh, you go down toward the Dead Sea from Jerusalem right now, you'll see uh, mountains without a single tree upon them and without a blade of grass upon them, nothing but a a barren, bleak, bare mountain with no uh, trees, no grass, or no vegetation at all upon them. And the land is that way, uh, some of it now. But it's been brought again from desolation. And the prophet Ezekiel prophesied that it would be the land that is, was barren and a wasteland and a desert, uh, to use the words that the prophet said, has now become like the Garden of Eden. Now, that's not my terminology. You find that in Ezekiel 36. And I'm simply telling you what the prophet said, that this barren land shall become like the Garden of Eden. We saw exactly the same prophet and prophecy given in our Sunday school lesson today from the heart and pen of Isaiah. Isaiah and Ezekiel were contemporaries, by the way, and lived relatively at the same time. And our Sunday school lesson in chapter 51 of Isaiah today talked about the wilderness becoming like the Garden of Eden. And of course, Isaiah was prophesying about that long 2,000 years of Isaiah's day down to our generation when the land of Palestine was a barren, desert, bleak, a bleak wasteland. And all those years it was, no rainfall, no productivity, 
no people of Israel to take an interest in it and to build the land up and to irrigate the land and to cultivate the land. And as a result of it, a desert, barren wasteland during all those years when Israel was dispersed among the nations of the earth. God seems to say by that, that if Israel can enjoy this land, I'll fix it where no other people in the world can enjoy it. And then in 1917, when the Allenby Declaration declared the land the national home for all the Jews of the world, then God began to send the, the latter rain. And the land that was desert now has an increased rainfall almost every single year. From 5 inches in 1917 uh, to 17 and 18 inches in 1974. And the land that was desert has now commenced to blossom and to bloom again and become productive again. The Valley of Megiddo that contains the blood of thousands of men in many famous battles for the last 2,000 years fought in the Valley of Megiddo has now become the breadbasket of all the Middle East. And there are no battles fought in Megiddo now. The, the Megiddo now is used to produce food uh, for the thousands and millions of people who live in the Middle East. There's no battles fought there now. But in the old days, that very valley called the plains of Jezreel in the Old Testament days was a bleak, barren wasteland, non-productive and good for nothing. Now it's blossomed and I've seen it with my eyes, not one time but five times. One of those fertile and productive areas I've ever seen, including any area in America. Now that's fulfilled Bible prophecy. And then the villages of Israel have now given place to, to massive modern cities with high-rise apartments and hotels and hospitals and universities and so on. The Hebrew University in Jerusalem, our 15,000 students, is a showplace of the world. The campus, a very beautiful uh, showplace. New Jerusalem is as modern as Greenville with its buildings and streets and traffic and so on. Behind the old walls of the old city, it's as ancient as it was in the days of our Lord. But New Jerusalem is a brand new, thriving uh, city uh, of, of beautiful buildings and many, many people who dress exactly as we dress uh, uh, in Israel. The land brought from desolation. The land that was barren and desert and desolate and worthless has now become like the Garden of Eden. And Ezekiel said it would. And we've seen it happen. We have seen it happen in the span of our lifetime. The first time I went to Israel was back in uh, 1965. It must have been about nine years ago, eight or nine years ago. We went down to Giza. And Giza then was just about as desert as any place I've ever seen in my life. Nothing but sand and poverty and poor people and shacks and hovels and no vegetation, no crops. And you wonder how the people survive in Gaza. We read about Gaza in Acts chapter number, uh, number 9. But the last time I was in Israel, year before last, we went to Gaza again. And in a period of about seven years, the bleak, barren land about Gaza had taken on a new look. The irrigation, the increased rainfall had turned the country about Gaza into fertile uh, 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 farming land and beautiful grass on the lawns and, and grass covering the hills and, and cattle along with uh, sheep grazing on the hills where a few years ago there was nothing but rock and sand. I saw that. I saw the same thing repeated in Bathsheba where Abraham lived in that ancient day. Bathsheba is down toward the Sinai Peninsula. 
down toward the desert area. And just a few years ago, Bathsheba was just about as ancient and as worthless as it was in the Bible times when uh, God, God withdrew the rain and the land dried up and became barren and desolate. Now Bathsheba is green. I saw the hills around about green with sheep and cattle grazing on the grass grown on the hills of Bathsheba. That to me is fulfilled Bible prophecy. Somebody said, well, that's the ingenuity of these Jews. They know how to cultivate and they know how to irrigate. And that's the work of these Jews. They've done that. No, my friend, the Jews had nothing to do with the rainfall that has increased from five inches to 19 inches. Only God can do that, and God's done that, and this land that was desert has now commenced to blossom like the Garden of Eden, exactly as Ezekiel the prophet said it would in that ancient prophecy in Ezekiel 36. Now, I'm not talking about prophecies right at this point that's going to be fulfilled. I'm reminding you of a Bible prophecy that is fulfilled and has been fulfilled not a hundred years ago, but in my lifetime, and I'm talking about a prophecy that I've seen with my eyes fulfilled. A fabulous, a tremendous thing indeed that is. For all these 2,000 years, listen to this now, and I'll go on to the other part of the message in a moment. In all these 2,000 years, the Dead Sea was thought to be exactly what the name implies. Dead Sea. Until my generation and yours, listen to me, will you? Down through all these 2,000 years, here's a, the lowest spot on the globe, 1,300 feet under sea level. Here's a body of water that has no outlet, that is 26% salt. No life, no fish in it, no kind of fish can survive in that kind of water. And here's a large body of water, 25 miles long, 15 miles across. In the lowest spot on the earth, the Jordan River down through all these centuries has emptied into the Dead Sea and no outlet, 27% salt. And people thought it was a worthless body of water. Nobody navigated it. There were no industrial uh, ports, seaport towns about it. There was no fishing done on it, as in the Sea of Galilee. It was a wasteland, a waste body of water. But in my lifetime, listen to me, that body of water has been discovered to be the world's richest mineral deposit. I mean, nothing like it in the world. Nothing like it in America. Nothing like it on any other continent. That body of water could not be calculated in worth as far as dollars and cents. The figures are so high uh, until no figure would be large enough to tell you how much the Dead Sea is worth in mineral deposits. I saw those Jews take uh, uh, bulldozers and, and work up a bed, uh, build a dike around a two-acre uh, lot, a dike about waist high, and then they'd fill that pond full of the water of the Dead Sea. They, they made those dikes uh, with their bulldozers, then they'd uh, take the water of the Dead Sea, put it in those dikes and in those ponds. And they'd let nature do the rest. <clears throat> in a few days, nature uh, would evaporate all the water and leave behind some of the finest salt you ever saw. And they'd take the same bulldozers and go out and pick up that salt by the bulldozers load that they took out of the water, 
All they had to do is just let it evaporate, and there's the salt. Didn't have to go into the, into the earth, mine it out of the earth, just took it out of the water, put it in those dikes, let the sun evaporate the water, and leave behind the salt. And they went out and picked it up by the, by the truckloads. And, and you could never, you could never extract all the salt in that water. To say nothing of other minerals for fertilizer and things that I'm not accustomed to and not familiar with. The wealth of the Dead Sea to Israel, and that belongs to Israel tonight. The wealth of that body of water could not be calculated by dollars and by cents. Now that's fulfilled Bible prophecy. Oh, preacher, oh, that's just an accident. No, my friend. You might as well say that the virgin birth was an accident. You might as well say that the resurrection of our Lord was an accident. You might as well say that the death of Christ for my atonement was an accident. No, I see behind all that I've said last Sunday night, I see behind all that I'm seeing now, the hand of God moving to bring about the fulfillment of what God had prophesied through his prophets and wrote down in the pages of God's word. Now let's look at some things that's going to happen. Number one tonight, I'd remind you and predict you from the Bible. This is not my prediction. But I predict that the mark of the beast will soon be given throughout the world. Bible predictions of things to come. The giving of the mark of the beast is immediately upon us. Now let's open your Bible there to Revelation 13. I think I told you to put your finger there a moment ago. In Revelation chapter number 13... Here's a prophecy. Here's a, a, a section of scripture that's very important. In verse number one, John sees a beast come up out of the sea. The beast that came up out of the sea in verse one, having seven heads and ten horns. Study that in relation to chapter 17. Study that also in relation to Daniel chapter number two and Daniel chapter number seven. Ten crowns upon these ten, uh, uh, these ten horns. Upon his head the name of blasphemy. This is the son of perdition. This is the man of sin. This is the Antichrist. Now he's described, uh, this beast is described like unto a leopard, like unto the bear, like unto a lion. And when you read Daniel chapter number, uh, number 2 and chapter number 7, you have the same characteristics of the little horn of Daniel 7 that you have here in the Revelation. These uh, characteristics appear. And the dragon... That's the devil. The dragon gave to the beast his power, second, his seat, third, his authority. And that fits exactly with Second Thessalonians 2 and verse number 4 and verse number, number 8. Even him whose coming is after all the lying wonders of the devil with power and so on, with all deceivableness of unrighteousness, the devil gave to the beast, the Antichrist, his power, his seat, and his authority. Now, verse 6, he opened his mouth and blasphemed against God. That's the abomination of desolation that Daniel prophesied would come and that our Lord certified in Matthew 24. And he blasphemed the name of God. He blasphemed the new temple, the tabernacle of God, and also them that dwell in heaven. He blasphemed those that dwell in heaven. And power is given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power is given unto him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And he'll be a worldwide dictator. And they that dwell upon the earth shall worship. Second Thessalonians 2, 4. 
He's going to set himself up in the temple, declaring himself to be God and demanding that he be worshipped as God, said Paul. And yes, John saying the same thing. All that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. Now there's another beast, verse 11. The second beast comes up out of the earth. The second beast is a false prophet. You read about the false prophet in Revelation 20 and Revelation 17 and 18 as well. And then here in Revelation chapter number 11, uh, chapter 13, verse 11. Who is the false prophet? Now, the, the man of sin is to be the last political dictator of the world. The false prophet is to be the last religious leader of the world. And these two go hand in hand together. Somebody said, Brother Harold, do you think Kissinger uh, is the Antichrist? He could well be the forerunner. I don't think he's the Antichrist. Daniel 9, 27 seems to say that the man of sin is to come from Rome. The people of the prince that shall destroy the city. And we know the Romans destroyed the city and destroyed Solomon's temple. And Rome will produce the Antichrist. Now I believe that the Antichrist will be a Jew. But he's going to be a Roman Jew. And on top of that, he's going to be tied in with the Roman Catholic Church. I was startled to discover a few days ago that there are many priests in Rome who are Jews. I couldn't imagine that. No more than I could imagine a Baptist becoming a priest. I couldn't imagine a Jew being a priest. But I discovered to my amazement that there are many Jewish priests in the Catholic Church. And the man of sin is to be tied in with the Roman Catholic Church. And the second beast is the Pope of Rome as far as I'm concerned. He has two horns like a lamb, but he speaks as the devil, as the dragon. And he exercised all the power of the first beast before him and causeth the earth and all that dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Now this second religious leader uh, doth great wonders, verse 13, to the degree that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth. He deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of the miracles that he hath power to do in the sight of the beast. And in the sight of those say, upon the earth, say unto those that dwell upon the earth that they should make an image. Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar's great image. They're going to make another image. And this second image in Revelation 13 will be an image of the first beast, the Antichrist. And when that image is made, the second beast has the power to, to give life to the image of that first beast. And to make the image of the first beast to speak and to cause as many as refuse to worship that image, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that they should be killed. Now verse 16. The second beast, the false prophet, causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand upon their foreheads, that no man might buy or sell, except he had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Now here is wisdom. Let him that understandeth count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred, three score, and six. Six, 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 the satanic trinity. Now note, in verse 16, the false prophet is going to cause every man upon the earth to receive a mark in his right hand, upon his forehead, one or the other. It doesn't say that he's going to coerce are compelled, but he's going to cause that the Antichrist and the false prophet is going to make it so attractive 
until men will clamor to receive the mark of the beast. They eagerly receive the mark of the beast in their right hand. It's time killer. It's a fad. And he's going to cause all people to receive a mark in their right hands upon their forehead. Now, this is not only going to be a religious mark. It's going to be a commercial mark. No man can buy or sell except he have that mark. You go to the fitting station to buy a tank of gasoline, let me see your mark. You go to the store to buy a suit of clothes, uh, show me your mark. You go to the store to buy a loaf of bed, they say, uh, may I see your mark, please. Now that mark will be put in your hand with some kind of uh, print uh, that you couldn't see with your natural eye. But under a certain light, it's as clear and evident as you can be. And there's your mark in your hand. And you can buy what you want or sell what you may as long as you have the mark of the beast in your hand or upon your forehead. Now you say, well, Brother Harold, I don't see how that can happen. Could I remind you that it's already taking place? That the forerunner of the mark of the beast you now have in your pocket? The average man or woman in this building has several cards and several numbers in your pocket right now. Either one of those could easily become this one number that one day every man will have and only one number. Now, I don't carry any money on me, very little money I carry in my pocket. I don't have to carry any money in my pocket because I have uh, several cards in my pocket. And I can travel anywhere I may. I can get on an airplane without a dollar bill in my pocket. All I have to do is show them my, my bank card and I can buy a plane ticket all the way around the world if I wanted to and needed to. I don't have to carry the money to buy gasoline. I have my courtesy cards in my pocket. And I don't have to do this or the other because I have cards in my pocket. If I have to go to the hospital, even out of the city of Greenville, I have a card in my pocket that will admit me in any hospital in America. I can get in without any difficulty. And then I have one card in my pocket that is of signal value. And all of us have it. Every man that works has that card. Every woman that works has that card, young or old. And we call that the social security card. And you've got it. I don't have to ask you. If you've got it, you have. And if you don't have one, you better go downtown and get one before the government finds out you don't have it or you're going to be in trouble. Because you're not supposed to work without it. That no man might buy or sell except he have the mark. And you're not supposed to be making any money if you don't have that Social Security number. And if you make money and, and Social Security money is not taken out of your money, you violated the law. And they'll put you in jail for that. Everybody in this building, therefore, has a Social Security number in your pocket right now. You're not going to get it. You've got it now. Is it not feasible? Is it not reasonable? For me and you, therefore, to conclude... That all of these cards that we now carry, sometimes a man may have a dozen. I don't have that many, but I do have five or six. All of these cards could be brought in, and one number could be placed in your hand that would take the place of all of these cards. Or one number could be put on your forehead where you couldn't see it with your natural eye, but as you stepped under a light, and every time you board an airplane these days, you have to step through a light. Last time I was on an airplane, I stepped through and, and the police met me and said, let me see your pockets. And I had to unload everything I had in my pocket. 
put every dime of money I had a little uh, little tray, took out my automobile keys, everything. I had to take everything out of my pocket. Couldn't get through otherwise. We've already gotten accustomed to that, haven't we? And if I'd buck, buck that policeman, I'd have gone to jail. Only way I'd get on that plane was to walk through that light and for that light to say it's all right. And the light said it's not all right, so I had to unload all my pockets. And he showed the man what I had. He was afraid I might have a weapon, a gun, a knife. And nobody gets on a plane these days except you walk through that light. That same light that detects, or that same electronic device that detects whether I've got a, a knife or a gun upon me could easily reveal that number in my forehead at the same process or the number in my hand. And all these cards that I have could be brought in and all of us could be given one number. Not only in America, but all the nations through the United Nations could work together. And everybody on the earth in every nation could be numbered and that number will go with you from the cradle to the grave. And I'm convinced somewhere in that number could be those mystical numbers 666. Six, six. Maybe at the beginning, maybe in the middle, or maybe at the end. But somewhere you're going to have those three sixes. That's the mark of the beast. It could easily be given. There's only one step between what we now have and the mark of the beast. And that one step would be a simplification. Simply give me the cards you've got. Empty your pocket out. Give me all the cards you've got. And we'll take your social security number and put it in the palm of your hand. You'll never lose it. Can't wash it away. We'll write it upon your forehead. If you lose your hand, you still got it on your forehead. If you get your hand injured, you still got it on your forehead. You can't lose it. Chances are you're not going to have both hindered. And there it is. You won't need to carry it with you. You'll never lose it. You'll always have it. And you'll always need it, whether you buy a gallon of gasoline or a loaf of bread. Let me see your hand. They put it in my hand. Let me see your hair, your forehead. They put it in my forehead. And there it is. And you carry it with you to your grave. Preacher, that's fantastic. I know it is. But I predict that's bound to come upon this earth. You say, well, now, Brother Harold, do you think that'll come before the church is raptured out? No. The mark of the beast could not come until after the revelation of the man of sin. Therefore, the mark of the beast will climax in the time of the tribulation after we've been caught out. That means that you and I that are saved would never receive the mark of the beast. Now, if it were to come before the rapture, we'd do exactly like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We'd say, no, sir, boy, you'll never put it in my hand. And there'll be some people, even in the tribulation period, that will refuse to receive the mark of the beast. And they're going to forfeit their lives and lose their lives for failing to receive the mark of the beast, even in the time of the tribulation period. Isn't that something? Bible prediction, the mark of the beast is going to come. Now, if you're in this building, you listen to the preacher now for a moment. If you're in this building tonight and, and, tonight and lost, the rapture could take place tonight. The rapture could take place next week. Were that to happen, as a lost man, you'd be left behind. And if the rapture takes place next week, it's only going to be a short time until this man of sin is going to appear one way or another. It'll only be a short time until he's going to appear on the scene. And when the Antichrist appears on the scene, it'll only be a short time after that until every person on this earth is to be marked. 
that no man might buy or sell, save he have the mark of the beast in his right hand or upon his forehead. That's a tremendous thought. Number two. Bible prediction number two of things to come. I predict from the scriptures, not what I think now. God forbid that I'd give you any philosophy of my own in relation to the second coming. I want to give you only what the Bible says. But I predict that Russia shall invade the land of Israel. And the third world war will break out. There has been two world wars. Only two in all history. The human family has been upon this earth a long time, and there have been many wars. The 30-year war in Europe is one of the uh, most amazing things that history has ever recorded. There have been many wars, but there's only been two worldwide conflicts in all history. Could not have been world wars before the discovery of the Western Hemisphere. But now that the Western Hemisphere has been discovered and settled, we've had two worldwide conflicts. And the third is inevitable. The third one will be sparked by the invasion of Israel by Russia and her allies. Now turning your Bible back to Ezekiel 38. I had you marked that a moment ago. And I'm going to read just a verse or two. Most of you that study Bible prophecy are quite familiar with these two chapters. May I say while you're turning that Ezekiel 38 and 39 is not Armageddon. Armageddon is Revelation 19 and the latter part and Revelation 20, not Ezekiel 38. Ezekiel 38 and 39 is the Third World War. We sometimes call it the battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, son of man, set thy face against Goma, against Gog, rather, the land of Magog the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus saith the Lord God, I am against thee, O God, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn thee back and put hooks in thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth, and all thine army, horses and horsemen, I'll do what I will with you. Now, wait a minute. Somebody will say, Brother Harold, how do you get Russia out of that? I don't see Russia's name in those uh, names in verses 1, 2, and 3. I read Gog and Magog, Meshach and Tubal, but I don't see Russia's name there. How do you get that? Well, now, turn right back to Genesis number 10, and I'll give you a little key that will unlock this chapter. Some of you that studied the Bible know what the key is, but there may be some of you in the building that doesn't understand what the key is that will unlock this chapter for you. But in Genesis chapter number 10, verse number 1 says... Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah following the flood. Shem, Ham, Japheth. From Shem came the Jewish people, the Israelites people. From Ham came the dark-skinned people of the world. From Japheth came the uh, Anglo-Saxon people of the world. And unto these sons were born other sons after the flood. Here are their names, Japhat, the sons of Japhat, Goma, Magog, Medaiah, Javan, Tubal, Meshach. That's the very same names I read in Ezekiel 38, isn't it? Plus some others. Now if you have a, a Scofield Bible in the back of your Bible, you probably have an ancient map of the world following the flood. You may not have, but if you'll 
If you look in your Bibles at home, you'll probably find in the back of some of your Bibles a map that shows you where the sons of Noah settled after the flood. Now these maps have been devised by great scholars who, made, who spent a lifetime studying the Bible and the history of the Bible and the history of the families of man upon the earth. And if you'll check that map in the back of your Bible, or if you don't have one in the back of your Bible, if you'll find a Bible that does have one, if you'll check that map, you'll find that Gog and Magog and Meshach and Tubal settle where modern Russia is today on the map. You'll find that Goma, Germany, settle where Germany is on the map today. And so we learn from that that these names in Ezekiel 38 are the names of the children of Japheth and where they settle following the flood. And all Bible scholars point to Russia and to Europe. Turkey is included and Germany is included uh, in the sons of Japheth and where they settle. Now that ought to give you a key. You say, well, why, why didn't God say Russia? Well, there was no nation of Russia when the Bible was written. There was no nation of Germany when the Bible was written. When Jesus lived upon the earth, there was no German nation. There was an Italian Roman people. There was a Spanish people and a French people. As far as we know, there were no German people in the days of our Lord. The Bible makes no mention of them. And uh, some other tribes have come into existence back in the years. But here are the ancient sons of Noah and where they settled. And that brings Russia, the northern army, and Gomer and her allies. And note in verse 5, Persia is lined up with these. Now everybody knows where Persia is. Persia is now where the uh, Middle Eastern oil crises comes up. Iran and Iraq is Persia. And you find Persia, Iran, and Iraq and Ethiopia and Libya joining up with Russia. And that's exactly what she's doing now. Those very nations are doing that. And we're having an upheaval in Ethiopia right now. And the Bible has already said that Ethiopia is going to be lined up with the Russians. And the Bible also says that Germany is going to wind up with the Russians and line up with the Russians. The, the Germans will never be with America in this Third World War. The Germans shall seek revenge from their defeat in the First War and the Second World War, and the Germans are going to line up with the Russians. God knew that when Ezekiel lived and put it down in the book. Now, God says, I'm going to bring you down against the land of unwalled cities. You're going to have a wicked thought, and I'll bring you down against these cities. Look at verse 8. After many days thou shalt be visited in the latter years. Thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword, that's Israel, blessed, and is gathered out of many people, that is Israel regathered. But you're going to have that wicked thought and come down against that land. And uh, in, uh, in verse 10, it shall also come to pass that at the same time shall things come into thy mind, and thou shalt think an evil thought. And here's that evil thought. I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. Now you say, why in, the world, why in the world did Ezekiel say up to the land of unwalled villages? When Russia is in the north, it should say down to the land. Well, my friend, always in the Bible, 
the land of Israel is called up. When you go to Jerusalem, you go up from every direction to get to Jerusalem. The hills of Judea is always called in the Bible up to Zion's hill, up to Jerusalem. And that's why Ezekiel used that terminology. These northern armies will say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest and to them that dwell safely. All of them dwelling without walls, having neither bars nor walls and gates. Why am I going? Here it is, verse 11, verse 12, to take a spoil and to take a prey. And to turn thy hand upon the desolate places that is now inhabited. And upon the people that are gathered out of the nations. Which have gotten cattle and goods. And that dwell in the midst of the land. You're going up to take a spoil and to take a prey. Verse 15. And thou shalt come from thy place out of the north parts. Thou and many people with thee. All of them riding upon horses. And here is the invasion of Israel by of the northern armies. In verse 22, you find some of the things that's going to come from that army. Uh, Napoleon met the elements at Waterloo. And one of the reasons Napoleon met defeat by the Russians was because not only of the Russian army, but, by, but because of the elements. And here are the elements, nature, warring against the northern armies in verse 22. Great hailstones, fire and brimstone, and rain coming upon the people. And then in verse chapter 39, Therefore thou son of man, prophesy against Gog. Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn thee back and leave but a sixth part of thee alive. Five-sixths of her army is going to be destroyed in the valley of Megiddo. And the third world war will be fought in Israel. And Russia and her allies are going to be totally and completely defeated. As much so as Syria and Jordan and Egypt was totally and completely defeated in the Six-Day War, the northern armies are going to meet the same defeat in the land of Israel. Now they're coming down to take a spoil and to take a prey. And I'll admit to you that for many years I wondered what that spoil and that prey would be. I didn't know. When I saw the valley of Megiddo with all of its productivity, I said they're coming down to take food. But with this oil crisis, I've changed my thought. Who would have thought a year ago that we'd have an oil shortage? And I'm convinced that the spoil and the prey that Russia and her allies are going to take in the Middle East will be the oil that's produced in the Middle Eastern nations. And the only way in the world that Russia can take that is to destroy Israel. And when she comes down to destroy Israel, the allies are going to meet with Israel and gather with Israel. And God's going to destroy the armies of Russian communism in the land of Palestine. Now we're told in verse number 11 that they go out throughout all the land and put up a peg at the places where dead bodies are found. And God's going to give graves in Israel for this great army. Verse 12 tells me seven months it'll take Israel to bear the dead. And then in verse 17, God's going to call for the flesh-eating fowls. And that same thing is set forth in Revelation 19 and 20. The flesh-eating fowls will come and devour captains and mighty men and soldiers of valor when the armies of Russia are destroyed in the land of Israel. 
You say, Brother Harold, do you think Russian communism will meet that kind of doom? I'm thoroughly convinced of it. Well, don't you believe, preacher, that Russian communism is going to take over the world? Not on your lifetime. Never. In order to take over the world, Russia must destroy Israel. And Russia cannot destroy Israel. And more than that, no other nation can destroy Israel. And when she comes down against the land of unwalled cities, she's going to meet the most utter surprise she's ever met. She's going to meet her doom and a total defeat in the land of Palestine, the land of Israel. The Bible predicts an invasion of Israel by the armies of the north to take a spoil and to take a prey. We thank you for listening to the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. If this sermon was a blessing to you, please share and invite others to listen and join us next time on the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast.